for religious people who genuinely object to being obligated by the government to do something, the stakes are enormously high. At the same time, the government's interest is in protecting as many people as possible from getting sick and dying. You're talking about, in some ways, weighing apples and oranges. You know, they're, they're incommensurable. Hello, and welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Reagan Kapp, and today we will be discussing the constitutional challenges facing state and federal vaccine mandates. In the fall of 2021, the states of Maine and New York passed emergency rules mandating vaccines for healthcare workers. Plaintiffs in both Maine and New York brought suit seeking injunctions against the state laws because they didn't accommodate religious objections. In both the Maine and the New York cases, the Supreme Court denied the plaintiffs' emergency requests for injunctions and allowed the vaccine requirements to remain in force despite their lack of religious exemptions. Although government-imposed vaccine mandates generally do not pose constitutional concerns, the Supreme Court has never weighed in on how broad exemptions to such mandates must be, or if religious exemptions are constitutionally required in the first place. In January, the Supreme Court blocked a federal vaccine mandate imposed by the Biden administration. The court struck down the Biden administration's requirement that employees of large companies either get vaccinated or undergo regular COVID testing. At the same time, the Supreme Court left in place a federal vaccine mandate applying to healthcare workers at facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. In today's podcast, Professor Nathan Chapman of the University of Georgia School of Law will join us to discuss the state of the law regarding religious liberty, the First Amendment, and vaccine mandates. Professor Chapman is the Pope F. Brock Associate Professor of Ethics and Professionalism at the University of Georgia and a McDonald Distinguished Fellow in Law and Religion at the Emory Center for Law and Religion. He is the author, with Michael McConnell, of the forthcoming Oxford University Press book on the history and doctrine of the Establishment Clause and the author of many papers on religious liberty and Christianity and law. Professor Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Reagan. It's great to be with you. So let's start at the beginning. In the age of COVID, some citizens have decried the government's mask mandates, stay-at-home orders, and now vaccine mandates as illegal encroachments on individual rights. When it comes to personal liberty during a pandemic, do those disgruntled with COVID restrictions have a legal leg to stand on? Well, it depends. Generally, it depends on whether we're talking about a federal action or a state action and what exactly the nature of the constitutional claim is. I don't think folks have a general right to be free from required vaccines by a state, for instance. The Supreme Court has decided, and it's pretty settled, that states have the power to require folks to be vaccinated 
there's a much harder question if a state tries to do that over someone's religious objection, because they may have First Amendment rights that protect them from being obligated to violate their religious beliefs. So thinking about state vaccine mandates specifically, where does state authority to pass vaccine mandates come from? Well, states have something courts and scholars call the police power, which has been called a general power to govern. And this power involves the authority to regulate health, welfare, and morals for the community at large. And in general, unless you know a state has in its own constitution put a limit on its power or the federal constitution puts a limit on a state's power to regulate in those areas, states can do that. In a case in 1905 called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, uh, the Supreme Court dealt with a state law that required everyone in a, in a certain city, it may have been Boston, to get a vaccine for the smallpox. The Supreme Court upheld that as a valid exercise of Massachusetts police power. States have been requiring at least some people to get vaccinated for all kinds of things for decades and decades. Uh, think about the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines that um, almost all school children are obligated to get throughout the country. But those are state-level laws that are totally consistent with the state's power to require people to get, even though it is an imposition on their bodily autonomy and integrity. And so in the last 20 years or so, there has begun to be a movement or maybe several related movements pushing back against vaccines in general for a variety of mostly philosophical reasons, reasons unrelated to a traditional religion anyway. And a lot of states do provide accommodations from their vaccine mandates for things like measles, mumps, and rubella for folks who have religious or other conscientious objections. As a practical matter, what the state is typically looking for is herd immunity, another term that we're all much more familiar with than we used to be. In general, so long as the numbers of objectors are not super high, it often is not going to interfere with the state's public health objective. It seems like the states are on really solid legal ground in issuing mandates and restrictions to promote the health and safety of their citizens. But as you mentioned, these mandates still have to meet constitutional snuff, including passing the bar of the First Amendment. Could you tell us more about the constitutional issues raised by vaccine mandates? So the main ones are about whether the state can require people to get vaccines when they have a religious objection. The federal constitution in the First Amendment prohibits in that amendment Congress, but it's been applied to the states through the 14th Amendment from prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And since at least the 1940s, you know, the Supreme Court has articulated a pretty robust doctrine protecting folks who have religious objections to laws and providing them with constitutional accommodations. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind as a historical and contemporary matter, the vast majority of religious accommodations in this country are not constitutionally mandated, or they're not the product of the Constitution requiring them. They're the product of the ordinary political process reaching a, a kind of compromise about the fact that generally we want people to do something, but we're sensitive to and we're sympathetic to the fact that some folks who are in the political minority have religious objections, and we're going to try to accommodate them as best we can. And so, you know, going back to the founding, there's a long tradition of accommodating religious objectors to war, for instance. And so 
to this day, you know, when the statutes authorizing the draft exempt those who are, have conscientious objections to participating in war in any form. And the same can be said for all kinds of state and federal level provisions that that are likely to raise these kinds of conscientious objections. The vast majority of them don't see the courts and they don't see the constitutional challenges because the political process has accommodated them. You know, the vast majority of vaccine mandates that exist in the in the country, including those that pre-existed COVID, do provide for a religious and, and oftentimes also philosophical objectors. So it's only in these handful of cases where states have sort of gone a different direction and decided not to accommodate them that these these issues arise. Now, whether the First Amendment requires the accommodation in those cases is a tough question. It's tough in part because the doctrine is relatively unclear and I think leaves a lot of discretion to judges, but it's the doctrine is also in a a moment of transition and dynamism, I would say, because with new justices on the court, especially justices appointed by President Trump, there's a more appetite to reconsider some of the old cases that it sort of had settled doctrine for a while, and also to articulate new rules under that settled doctrine. And so part of what we're seeing in terms of the, the way the courts are deciding, and sometimes you get dissenting opinions at the Supreme Court, it's all part of what is, I think, a, a moment of flux in the free exercise doctrine at the Supreme Court. And these vaccine mandate cases are really just one part of that bigger picture. Yeah, it's really helpful to know that the First Amendment just sets a minimum floor of constitutional protections for religious freedoms. And that most state mandates already make accommodations for those with religious objections. But in those edge cases where states don't provide for religious exemptions, like the Maine and New York rules, how do judges go about thinking about whether the Constitution requires religious exemptions for state mandates or not? Well, the governing doctrine has been in place since the early 90s. It's from a case called Employment Division versus Smith. And there the court said that as long as a law is religiously neutral and generally applicable, then as long as it's reasonably related to a legitimate government interest, it's fine. The government doesn't have to accommodate religious objectors. To illustrate the way that rule worked in that case, it was a case about a couple of guys who had used peyote in a Native American religious ceremony and then had been ineligible for employment benefits because of their peyote use. Using peyote in Oregon at that time was unlawful, and it made them ineligible for benefits. And the court said, you know, the Oregon law against using peyote is religiously neutral. It applies to everyone, and it is generally applicable. There aren't carve-outs for some people. But what happens if a law is not religiously neutral or is not generally applicable? Well, it's not necessarily unconstitutional. Then a government has to show that it has to satisfy what is called strict scrutiny. It has to show that the government has a compelling interest in not accommodating this claimant and that not accommodating them is necessary to achieving that interest. So as you can see, a lot is at stake in terms of the way the doctrine works. If the law is religiously neutral and generally applicable, 
it's only subject to rational basis review. Is it a reasonable way to achieve a legitimate interest? And almost all laws satisfy that. If it isn't religiously neutral or generally applicable, then the government has a really heavy lift to show that it's necessary to achieve this compelling interest. And so, as you can imagine, a lot of the argument in these kinds of cases arises around whether or not a law is religiously neutral or generally applicable, because the answer to those questions is more often than not determinative of the outcome, whether the claimant gets an accommodation or not. Thanks so much for walking us through the doctrine. That's a really useful overview. To get a sense for how these doctrinal principles work in action, I think it could be helpful to talk about the facts of the Maine and New York cases and why their mandates ultimately survived, even though they didn't accommodate religious objections. Sure. So there were two state cases in the last six months or so in which states enacted vaccine mandates for the healthcare workers in those states. So it applied to covered workers who are in hospitals and ERs and nursing homes and things like that. And most of the other states that have enacted vaccine mandates like this included religious accommodations with them. These two states did not. Well, on the surface, it looks like these are religiously neutral laws. They don't say anything about religion one way or the other. They apply to everyone regardless of uh, his or her religion. They apply without respect to religious activity, at least on the surface of it. And they're generally applicable. They apply to everyone. But this raises a question about what is religious neutrality and how do you know whether something is really generally applicable? And here, the two cases have sufficiently different facts, I think, that it's worth pulling them apart and thinking of them separately. In the Maine case, a case out of the state of Maine, the regulation had an exemption for those who, for medical reasons, couldn't take the vaccine. Is it really religiously neutral? Is it really generally applicable? The folks who argued that it was not religiously neutral made this argument. They said, the main vaccination statute that existed until about eh, 2019, as fate would have it, they actually amended it in 2019 to eliminate a religious accommodation. So the, the statute that had ordinarily required vaccinations for healthcare workers and, and students had originally included religious accommodation. They eliminated it. They were having a hard time getting to herd immunity, or they were concerned that they might have a hard time as anti-vax movements were burgeoning. And so from what I can tell in the political history, without any real reference to religious objectors or animosity towards religion in general, the state legislature changed it. And there was, a, I think, a state referendum that tried to veto the change and it failed. And so it used to be the case that in Maine, there was a religious exemption. Now there isn't. And the folks challenging the COVID vaccine requirement said, well, this looks like it's, even though on the surface, it looks like it's religiously neutral, really the history shows that it's not. That argument didn't win for probably good reasons. Justice Gorsuch wrote for a group of dissenters on the Supreme Court saying that there was something to it. But there was also more going on that Gorsuch was more concerned about. And it has to do with the general applicability of the statute or the regulation. Exempting folks with medical conditions, does that mean that it's no longer generally applicable? 
it is true it doesn't apply to literally every healthcare worker. But then again, applying it to all healthcare workers wouldn't really be generally applicable either. You'd leave out people who work in those facilities who are not healthcare workers. You'd leave out the people they live with. It turns out almost no law is generally applicable if you think of it in those terms. Even laws against murder have defenses. So this has been a problem, a conceptual and then now increasingly practical problem with the general applicability rule that the court articulated in the Smith case. How general does it have to be? And how do you know whether it's generally applicable? This is where some of the court's recent decisions in the stay-at-home cases or the lockdown cases or whatever we want to call them over the last couple of years have played a, a significant role. Because in some of those cases, the court started to articulate what it means for a law to be generally applicable. And one of the things it says is that to be generally applicable, it it cannot exempt comparable secular activities without also exempting religious activities that are comparable. How do you tell whether they're comparable? The court says you look at the government's interest in the law in general. And if this exemption for secular activities undermines the interest the same way that an exemption for religious observers would, then it's not really generally applicable. It looks like the government is kind of gerrymandered the law to exempt some people for reasons that it favors and not to exempt religious observers. Under that rationale, the justices had to think about whether or not exempting medical folks with a medical reason not to have, uh, not to get vaccinated was a comparable secular exemption to what the religious folks were asking for. And the court, you know, the majority of the court appeared to hold, although it's not totally clear because it was not there on a merits decision. It was up on a preliminary injunction. But most of the court, it seems, were willing to say that, okay, exempting medical excuses is categorically different than exempting religious accommodations because we can only speculate. The point of the law is public health. And if you're concerned about public health, making people get sick by giving them a vaccine is pretty counterproductive to that interest. The same kind of counterproductivity is not at stake if you um, make folks get the vaccine who just have a religious objection. I was hoping we could pause for just a moment and linger on what you said about the lockdown cases from earlier in the pandemic. It seems like The plaintiffs challenging state restrictions on large gatherings earlier in the pandemic were much more likely to be successful than plaintiffs in these vaccine mandate cases in arguing that state action was on the wrong side of the First Amendment. So given the doctrinal framework we've been discussing, why were plaintiffs in the lockdown cases so much more likely to prevail? Yeah, so... Applying this very similar doctrinal framework, those cases had more exceptions. And I think it was harder for the governments in some of those cases to make the case that the exceptions that they had allowed categorically created a higher risk for making the pandemic worse than allowing a comparable exception for religious gatherings. You know, the facts in each of the the cases is a little bit different. There were cases out of uh, Nevada, that where casinos were exempted, but churches were not. Um, cases out of New York City, where liquor stores and acupuncture um, and massage salons were exempted, but 
Um, churches were subject to a much smaller number restriction. Um, one of them was uh, out of California called Tandem versus Newsom. And that case was a California regulation that prohibited indoor private gatherings that included more than three households. Um, they were religious groups. They had Bible studies or they had um, religious services in like a house church or something like that who wanted to meet and they weren't allowed to do so under these rules. And so they challenged the rules. At the same time, you know, hair salons, a lot retail stores and restaurants were all allowing more than three households to meet in the same indoor space. How do you decide the comparator? I mean, this is the million dollar question in these cases. Is a, you know, a church, an indoor church service at a, a house more like a really dangerous COVID situation than a restaurant or not? Epidemiologists probably have you know, ways to decide this that would be a little bit different than what the court did. Although my sense is it, it really all depends, right? It depends on how big the space is, how many people are there, whether they're wearing masks, whether the windows are open. I mean, a whole bunch of things that are very fact specific. And I think the most, the best way to understand the court's reasoning was in order to determine whether or not something is comparable to the religious objection, you've got to look at a pretty specific degree of granularity and say, here, the government didn't really try to account for all of the variations that could possibly happen. Instead, it spoke with a pretty broad brush. And if you're going to do that and you're going to exempt some things, you better exempt religious things too, unless you have pretty sound reasons for not exempting the religious things. So those are those cases. I also think, Reagan, it's really important to take a step back and remember that we're talking about hotly contested constitutional issues during a period of extreme political foment in our country. It's a time when partisan fevers are running high, pardon the pun. The COVID pandemic and how to respond to it became a culture war issue. Um, and so, you know, constitutional law, including rights cases, don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in political contexts. And the justices are part of that context, no matter how much they try. And I think they do try and give faith to distance themselves from it. It's not surprising that the justices who are more inclined towards religious liberty sympathies in the first place would be perhaps especially so at a time when it appears that there's a culture war going on and there's a lot of disagreement about what the right policy moves are. Right. Context is so important for getting a full picture of what's going on in the legal world. At this point, let's pivot to the New York case. How are the facts of the New York case different from those of the main case in your view? Sure. So the New York case very similar regulation in the sense that it covers healthcare workers. It requires them to get vaccinated. It also, like the main case, has an exception for those with a medical necessity. And, you know, with respect to that exception, as you would expect, Justice Gorsuch wrote for the same justices saying that this makes it not generally applicable and therefore subject to strict scrutiny. Now, the difference in the facts is that there was a sort of procedural point that was a little bit different. And then the new governor of New York had some comments that she made in public that in the minds, at least of some of the justices, made this a, a different situation. So the procedural point was this. Initially, one of the administrators for, I think, the health agency in the state of New York had proposed a, an interim or temporary rule 
that would have required healthcare workers to get vaccinated. And it did include not only a medical, but a religious or philosophical exemption, just like the vaccination mandates in the vast majority of states that have have entered them or have enacted them. That rule, I don't think ever went into effect. Within a few days, um, a council, which was more of an administrative agency level, proposed, and then within a few days after that, enacted a rule that put in place the vaccine mandate with only the medical necessity exemption, not a religious or philosophical objection exemption. As a result of that, some of the plaintiffs who were seeking an accommodation said, this isn't like Maine, where years ago they had religious accommodations for other vaccine mandates, and they changed those before COVID even happened. This is just last month or last week, and they were promising us a religious accommodation. They appeared to think it was okay. Every other state has it. And then we get a new governor. Incidentally, there was a new governor that came into that the governor's mansion between when the initial proposal was made and when the council's rule went into effect. New governor comes along and suddenly they ditch it. So that looks like that it's not neutral, that even though on its face it's neutral, it, it doesn't like single out religious people for vaccines. But we think the object of eliminating that exemption itself was non-neutral. They're, they're targeting religious objectors. They want us to take a vaccine, even though they don't think it's necessary. That was one of the facts that I think was arguably a little bit different. Another fact that Gorsuch latched onto was, like I said, the governor, her name is pronounced Hochul. Around the time, like she makes several public statements. I think a couple of them were actually in churches where she was visiting as a guest and spoke on matters of public policy. But it's when politicians do that, it's always kind of hard to know whether they're they're wearing their official hat or they're wearing their personal hat or it's some combination of the two. But in any case, she she said, yeah, it was intentional that we got rid of the religious exemption. And she went on to opine about the fact that you know most religious organizations are saying that there's no religious problem with taking the vaccine. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. I don't want it to be unfair, but she said to one group, you know, you're the smart ones. You got the vaccine, but there are a lot of people right, who are objecting, and there's no good religious reason to object. And so it sounded, you know, from her statements, I think it's fair to say, at least I believe it's fair to say, that she clearly had a religious view about whether or not real religion would lead someone to not get the vaccine. So she didn't think these religious claims had religious merit. And that is troubling. I think the Establishment Clause prohibits the government from saying, oh, yeah, we would give you an accommodation, but we think your religious claim is total bunk. I mean, uh, the burning bush, what a load of crap. You can't imagine uh, the government actually saying that. So what is the court to do about these statements? Personally, I think the hard thing about that is identifying like which of these statements are Hochul sort of speaking as a private citizen on a matter of public concern. I mean, it's she's entitled to have her opinion about religion, just like she's entitled to have her opinion about policy. There's a difference between that and declining to give an accommodation because you think the religious views are religiously false. And if that's what was going on, then that seems to me to be a much worse problem. So if I understand it correctly, are the statements troubling mostly because they might be a violation of the Establishment Clause or because we'd view them as evidence that the mandate is not religiously neutral? or both. So it could be both. 
So and they could be evidence that the, the regulation is not religiously neutral for purposes of establishing this first this free exercise claim. But in general, like it's one of the hallmarks of the establishment clause that the government can't take sides in religious disputes. The free exercise issue is what brings this case to court and it's queued up because what they want to do is exercise their religion. But even if there were no free exercise claims, that is to say, suppose someone didn't have standing perhaps to bring the suit, we could still say it violates the Establishment Clause for the government to uh, to deny an accommodation or something like that on the ground that the religious views it believes to be false. It's interesting because although the Maine and New York vaccine mandates both ultimately were allowed to stand without religious exemptions, the cases initially came out differently at the district court level, with the New York plaintiffs originally winning the relief they sought. Now, that New York district court decision was reversed on appeal, and it should be noted that some people have called that case an outlier. But how do you think we should think about it? Should we think about the plaintiff's victory in the New York district court as an outlier? Or was it really a stronger case for a religious accommodations claim than the main case? So I do think it's a stronger case for an accommodation. Um, I don't know that it was the right decision, but it, for the reasons I've described in terms of the, the political and um, legislative background, it's a, it's a stronger case. I also think this is part of a much bigger picture of some lower courts, often Trump appointees, but not only Trump appointees, who see the handwriting on the wall that the Supreme Court is wrestling with what to do in a, a particular area of doctrine, in this case, the free exercise doctrine. And they engage in a little bit of entrepreneurship. In real sort of realism terms, that helps explain the district court opinion in the New York case as much as anything else. In sort of formalistic doctrinal terms, I also think it was a better vehicle for a religious accommodations claim than the main case. Zooming out for just a moment, what do you see as the future of challenges to state vaccine mandates on religious liberty grounds? Well, uh, realistically, it looks like we may be coming out of a season in which states have a lot of appetite to impose vaccine mandates, or at least coronavirus mandates. It looks like those will become less popular. If they do, I still expect most of them to include religious exemptions, if for no other reason than it creates a political and legal headache that is probably unnecessary. To the extent New York and Maine style statutes continue to exist, I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court ultimately took one of the cases and held that it was that it did violate the free exercise clause not to provide an accommodation. But, you know, part of the court has been doing in articulating this general applicability standard that involves comparing things is whether things are comparable from the standpoint of the government's interest, the same two things, their comparability can change over time because the government's interest changes over time. So the government's interest is in public health. The government you know, has uh, different reasons to do different things depending on the state of the pandemic, right? And what makes sense early in a pandemic might not make as much sense later in the pandemic and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, I think if, if the pandemic has seemed to have like, as a cultural matter, putting aside the actual epidemiology of it, as a cultural matter, people are just kind of like over the pandemic in six months. And there are still these kinds of mandates sitting out there. 
I would not be surprised to to see a majority of the Supreme Court say, okay, enough already. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground here. I'm thinking that to round out our discussion, we could turn briefly to what's going on constitutionally on the federal side with federal mandates. We've talked a lot about the mandates from individual states, but where does federal authority to pass vaccine mandates come from? And what are the limits of that power? Sure. So, you know, the states, as I said, have the general power to regulate for the health and welfare of people. The federal government doesn't. Only those powers that are enumerated in the Constitution are are kind of delegated from the people to the federal government. When the federal government acts, it has to act on the basis of one of those powers delegated to Congress. And Congress does have powers delegated to it that would authorize it to require people to get vaccinated. Typically, they're specific and they're related to a specific function that the federal government plays in society. So, for instance, if Congress wanted to, it could as an incident of regulating the armed forces, it could probably require all the members of the armed forces to get vaccinated. Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. And that is one of the powers that has brought us because interstate commerce now is so much everywhere all the time. And so the courts have held that Congress have a ton of power to regulate the terms of employment with companies that engage in or affect interstate commerce. So that's that's one way that Congress could reach a whole bunch of people. Maybe it could require everybody who receives some kind of benefit from the federal government, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, to get a vaccination. So that's a sort of broad background. Now, the way that the federal government actually makes people do things typically is through uh, Congress will enact a law and the executive branch and directed by the president, a specific agency will create a regulation that fleshes out and implements that law with a regulation. What has been at issue is whether or not, not whether or not the, the federal regulations that require some people to get vaccinated, whether they violate a religious liberty right, but whether or not Congress has actually given the agency the power to make that regulation in the first place. They're not about whether Congress has the power to do it. For purposes of those cases, the courts have accepted that Congress does. But the question is whether or not Congress actually delegated the power to the agencies to do it. There have been two to go before the Supreme Court. The court upheld one of the mandates as being consistent with what Congress had asked the agency to do, and it invalidated another mandate as being beyond what Congress had authorized the agency to do. Those cases are really about what we tend to think of as separations of of powers principles. Has Congress actually authorized the executive to do this? Congress has a legislative power. The executive branch doesn't. In theory, if the executive branch hasn't been authorized to do it, it's just trying to make law, which is for Congress to do. And so uh, that's the the question in those cases. The two mandates you just mentioned were implemented by the Biden administration. One of them was an emergency rule that large businesses require their workers to either get vaccinated or else to get COVID tested once per week. The other was a mandate by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services requiring healthcare employees at businesses receiving federal funding to be vaccinated. Given the principles you just described, why was the vaccine mandate implicating federal funding upheld 
while the other was struck down. Sure. The Medicaid vaccination requirement was upheld because the court said, or majority of the court said, that the statute that said that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which administers Medicaid and Medicare, has the authority to place conditions, quote, as may be necessary to the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services. And that provision covered like about 90% of the facilities at issue. And the court said that that authorized was specific enough authorization to give the secretary authority to require vaccinations. The court also looked at kind of the longstanding practice of the secretary of the health and human services in implementing that statute and said that these kinds of, of regulations were similar to things that the secretary has done in the past. And so it's reasonable to read Congress's delegation of authority as as covering a vaccine mandate. In the other case, OSHA said that there was a statute that effectively authorized it to create a vaccine or mask mandate that gives it power to address when employees are going to be subject to, quote, grave danger from, quote, new hazards. Now, the majority read the statutes authorizing OSHA to regulate health and safety in the workplace as focusing on workplace safety. It sort of said, you know, all of this needs to be read in the context of what happens in the workplace. We're thinking about like, you know, spills of toxic goo or people bonking their heads on steel girders or something like that. And so we can make people wear rubber gloves and helmets and have reasonably safe workplaces. But the the majority said the power to make someone get vaccinated, which covers all of their life everywhere they go, seems like a greater power than that. And we would expect that if Congress meant to authorize OSHA to exercise that power, it would have done so expressly instead of implying it by talking about grave danger from new hazards. The dissenters you know, wrote, I think, a pretty powerful opinion saying, it seems to us that COVID is a grave danger that presents new hazards. And the vaccine is a reasonable way to implement it. They also pointed out that it wasn't just a vaccine mandate. Employers had the choice to let their employees comply by either getting the vaccine or by getting a weekly test and wearing a mask. And I have to say, wearing a mask at work is clearly in the wheelhouse of what OSHA has historically done. So in my mind, I think if this were just a vaccine mandate, it's a harder case. I find majority's reasoning to be a little less persuasive, given that corporations had the authority to decide whether or not to require vaccines or masks, which a lot of employers were already doing. Oh, and to be, I mean, this is probably worth pointing out at this point, the federal mandates did include religious accommodations. And that may seem like a bad thing for the Maine and New York statutes, but not necessarily. There is a federal statute that requires religious accommodations generally from federal law that is a higher standard for the federal government to meet than the free exercise clause. And so, you know, as a legal matter, probably courts would have interpreted that statute to require religious accommodations from these mandates, whether or not the agencies had included them in the the mandates. That's a really good point to emphasize that when it comes to actions by the federal government, Federal statutory law sets an even higher floor for accommodating religious objections than the First Amendment does. To take us home here, it would be great to just pause a moment and take stock of what's at stake. 
sometimes it can feel like the competing interests in free exercise cases here, religious freedoms and the government's interest in promoting public health are irreconcilable. How do you measure the stakes of these cases and discussions? And do you see a way forward that does a really good job of balancing all the interests implicated here? There's one more component of this that I haven't mentioned that I, like I'm somewhat obligated to talk about. I think some of the, the plaintiffs in these cases genuinely believe that their religion forbids them from getting this, these vaccines. The, the kinds of religious reasons they have given sound in objections to abortion, and they would feel themselves to be complicit in that. I think one reason lots of people kind of intuitively understand that is because objections to abortion are often correlated with religious beliefs about when life begins, things like that. And so I think that many of these claims are totally sincere. I think there probably are a bunch of re religious accommodation claims to or objections to the vaccines that really are based on religion at all. It seems to me like there are a bunch of people who object to getting the vaccine partly on culture war grounds, partly on neo-libertarian grounds, whatever we want to call it, you know, sort of populist, you can't make me do something I don't want to do. And so they've got all these, these reasons, but none of those are religious reasons. And I think a lot of folks have co-opted religious reasons as a way to get to avoid vaccines because there is no, okay, you're a populist libertarian, you get an exemption from the vaccine. That's not an accommodation basis, but religion is. And for many people, they're also religious. And so in their mind, it's like, oh, I'm religious. I don't like abortion and I don't like vaccines. Why doesn't this work? So I think the best way to handle this, and it, it is actually being handled this way in many cases, is to require the, the claimants to demonstrate that they really do believe their religion forbids them from doing this. In other words, to test their sincerity. There's nothing unconstitutional about that. The government did it all the time during the Vietnam War, during the draft. Courts can do this. They get kind of touchy about it. It makes people, it makes them feel a little weird inside to like think and talk about religion a lot of times. And a lot of times the government doesn't challenge sincerity. And so it just doesn't arise in the litigation. I think it's appropriate for the government to do that when there is some indicia of insincerity. As long as those don't verge into judging the veracity of the religious beliefs, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it makes a lot of sense. It, it sort of makes people put their money where their mouth is. I think that the stakes are really hard to measure, Reagan, to be honest. I think they're basically incommensurable. For religious people who genuinely object to this, to being obligated by the government to do something, the stakes are enormously high, right? It, it isn't just a, a right or a, a way to stick it to the man. It involves something that's that goes to kind of the core of who they are day in, day out, and their, the story of their life, their community, etc., at the same time, the government's interest is in protecting as many people as possible from getting sick and dying and the economic you know, effects of a global pandemic. One of the things that makes these cases so interesting and, and important, but also hard, is that you're talking about, in some ways, weighing apples and oranges. You know, they're, they're just not commensurable. And in my opinion, this is one reason I started out emphasizing the fact that America has such a long tradition 
with plenty of black marks. I mean, it's not perfect by any means, but in general, it has a really strong tradition of trying to accommodate religious objectors when at all possible. In our best moments, we respect the rights of folks to exercise religion. We respect what religion can provide for society and for human beings. So my preference in general is for the political process to work these things out. I would prefer our society to like try to find ways to get along and compromise across deep and, and important differences. We're in a situation where it's a culturally and morally pluralistic society. Those divisions are manifesting themselves all over the place. And the sooner we start being nice about it, the better, in my opinion. That said, uh, when it gets to the courts, I think it's difficult to expect judges to weigh these things perfectly dispassionately because I don't think it's possible to, nor is it possible to weigh them in a way that is totally rationally satisfying. Because as I said, I think they're, they're incommensurable. What we should insist upon is that the courts weigh all religious exercise, all sincere religious exercise the same, not just religious exercise against policies they don't personally like or by members of religions that they can understand and relate to, or maybe even co-religionists. It's for everybody. It's not just for the large religious minority in our country. Well, that seems like a great note to end on. Professor Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Reagan. It's been awesome to be with you. Thanks for having me on. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at U-C-H-I-L-R-E-V and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 5.